Hi, welcome to Embrace the Madness. This is Madeline, your host. If you are just now tuning in for the very first time, this is a podcast I started a little under a year ago and really just kind of what inspires me is how we can create this big, beautiful reality while we're here as humans because, you know, we're part of something bigger and more beautiful and Sometimes the human part is a little messy and sticky, but I feel like when we can turn inside and share with others, then we're definitely in a better spot to grow and learn, learn from each other and build each other up and truly step into our success and power. So last week, I'm like, whoa, (laughs) everything's just been so wonky a little bit, just trying to get like things back on track. Last week, I talked about trauma and that was, I think, really powerful for me. Just, you know, at least, at least in my perspective, talking about like traumatic things helps me. Um, But it's definitely always, always a good idea to do it with someone you trust and someone who's a professional. And speaking of professionals, I realized like mental health is just such a big thing right now. And especially with the pandemic, there's just feelings and emotions all over the place. And so what are we going to do? So I thought it would be a cool idea to get with my friend Ingram. She, I went to high school with her. Um, We went to like a private Catholic high school and she was just always so sweet. I was brand new my freshman year. So I didn't know anybody. And I was like, Catholicism, this is scary. So she's always been such a sweet light. And just, you know, when you keep up with people on the internet, I saw that she was going into social work and she's licensed and has been working for a bit. And so I just thought it'd be really neat to hear her story, see what she's been up to post high school And holy shit, you guys are in for like the biggest treat ever. I think this has to be one of my favorite interviews, hands down. She's just got a lot of good, good, tough love. She's not afraid to be real. She's not afraid to be herself. And I think that is part of what we do on Embrace the Madness and we truly step into our our individual power. So I'm going to let you guys listen to that. My microphone, I think... I had recorded the Zoom call with uh, my, it was like accidentally my computer microphone. So, but that's okay because Ingram is, you know, shining right now. So it's not that bad. It's just different, but yeah. Um, And then before also I do that, I just want to remind everyone I'm starting a Patreon and that is basically like you can do a monthly membership, 5, 15, 30 but I'm going to do like bonus podcasts, bonus content. I'm going to mail postcards for everybody that subscribes. Just, you know, everybody loves a little handwritten note and it's going to be really cool. I'm planning on it coming out like in a month. So September, I'm thinking like September 2nd. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned. Um, You know where to find me on social. And if you don't, there's a little blip at the end of the episode. Um, Yeah, I just really want you to listen to this one. So 
I hope you enjoy. Oh, shit. Hey. Um, oh, shit. There you are. Hi. I'm recording. Are you cool with that? I mean, yeah, honestly. How are you? How was your day? It was wonderful. Thanks for asking. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm good. Just chilling. Sorry. <laughs> I keep disappearing. I look a mess and I'm sitting on my couch. No, you're beautiful. You want to meet my dog? Yes. Danny, come here. Come here. What's her name Danny. Her name's Danny. Yeah, she's a yeah. her because she's named after Daenerys Targaryen. Because I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I actually have never watched all that. Good lord. <laughs> the best she's show the ever. One, right? But it's super slow. Oh god. Oh. Say hi. Hi. Bark bark. <laughs> And my partner's back there chanting. This is Madeline, Madeline chanting. Maddie or Mads or whatever. Hi. Hi. That's my partner. Hi, partner. Oh, okay, now that you've had a wonderful tour of my family. <laughs> what are you? Are you in Jackson now? Uh-huh. Cool, cool. It's a ma'am. So as we talk, I will be simultaneously rolling my blunt and getting high. Fuck um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the modern way of doing social work for me now um, yes yes when I get home in the evenings you definitely have to decompress after certain days yeah you so, yeah you hit the nail on the head when you said self-care <laughs> <laughs> literally this home, is yeah. my decompression self-care end of the day routine so I come home and I sit on the couch. I changed my clothes, although I kept my top for today. But um, I changed my clothes, um, and I cuddle with my dog. Sometimes we go for a walk or whatever. But decompression, I have to get high for sure, for sure. And almost, are you? I can totally keep this in there. Are you full? Okay. Sick. Okay. Other time. Um, I know. I'm just like, uh, it's gonna be forever before Tennessee gets legalized. Yeah, it literally will. Um, and it's sad that Arkansas is and we're not. You would think that Tennessee you would, would think. be. Yeah, you would think we'd be a little more advanced than Arkansas. But, you know. Well, we can't put on masks, though. So, you know. I think but you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah. We have to lower those expectations. No one will wear a mask. This is ridiculous. Oh, my Absolutely God. ridiculous. So, I read over. A few of the questions you were talking about, I don't know how informal or formal you want this to be. I don't really know where you want me to start, but Uh, lead me in there. (laughs) Um, Okay, so if you want to, like, get your stuff ready, I can just, like, give you a mini spiel or something. Basically, I don't know if you've listened to my podcast, but it's just kind of like, okay, we're humans and we're living this weird-ass human life. Like, how can we best deal with all the shit that's like happening to I guess like make our lives the happiest but with you being in mental health and it being like such a big fucking thing right now I just was like hey I think Ingram would have a cool perspective to hear what she's been doing in social work because I mean I haven't talked to you since for everybody listening to the podcast we went (laughs) together yeah it's Um, been since high school for sure sure but I, I know like we both ended up taking the psychology route and I just like wanted to know like what got you into that what why did you go down that direction why did you choose social work just basically kind of like I guess give me a 
update on you and your life and how you've been since I've seen you last. And because I know you, I was looking at your Facebook and you went to New Orleans and you interned down there and went to college, right? Yeah, I went to, I got my master's down in New Orleans um, and then moved back. But I'm happy to tell you from beginning to end how I got to where I am right now. Give me just a second because I'm about to grab another. um, Yes, get your supplies. Um, yeah, so for everybody tuning in this week, um, yeah, we're talking to my friend Ingram and we went to high school together and she's always been so sweet. I think she, I don't remember what grade you left, but she didn't graduate with our grade year. What your 10th grade? Yeah. Middle of the 10th grade year. So shortly after the fall semester, um, ended and we were going into spring, I left. Okay. Um, or actually, I was there for like the first two or three weeks of that semester and then left um, because I had some issues. Yeah, I had some issues happen at Houston. Um, and oh, ended yeah, because you went there. Uh-huh. I forgot. And I wasn't in the district technically. So they tried to send me to Germantown. And so we were trying to appeal it. So I had to come back to IC for a minute. And I was so upset. Oh, my but God. In retrospect. I am actually upset I didn't end up staying at IC. Um, Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. (laughs) All good. Um, So, okay, we'll start from the beginning. So just to kind of piggyback off of, and I'm rolling up now. So um, just to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying about me leaving sophomore year, that is what kind of started my wonderful journey of depression. So when I left IC, I left because the volleyball program was going down um, and we had lost our coach. And so I knew if I wanted to go to college on volleyball, which at the time I did, I needed to transfer schools. And at the time, Houston would have allowed me to play because I was coming from a private school and going into a completely different school system. So I would have been able to play and not have to have taken the year off to play JV because I didn't want to do that. I only wanted to play varsity. My head was big. I was all in it, you know? I remember so, y'all were just like, yo! Yeah. <laughs> we were killing it at the time. So, you know, um, I wanted to continue that. And For I sure. definitely... Um, was trying to carry that weight with me to Houston. And then I got to Houston and we were starting like open gym practices and just, excuse me, because it was spring, we weren't in the season. So that was okay because I was getting to know people at school. But I can tell you, I think immediately when I got to Houston, there was a complete shift in my personality. There was a complete shift in how I felt in general about being there. I absolutely, I had lost... I went from our freshman class was what, 54, 59, maybe? Uh, we Damn, were the that biggest. sounds like so many. <laughs> it sounds like so many, but we were the biggest freshman class to have ever graced IC's campus, okay? And we were proud of that until we lost half the class the next year. But, <laughs> but we, it was, I went from a classroom size of like 12 to 15 mm. to a classroom size of almost 30. And it was a complete culture shock for me. When I left IC, y'all's graduating class had how many people in it? I think like 22. Yeah. When I left IC and got to Houston, that graduating class that I went into uh, at Houston, 
450, 500 maybe. Holy shit. I could not imagine. It was the biggest culture shock I had ever experienced. Well, and it's like in like suburbs too, right? Super suburbs. (laughs) So super suburbs, but kids I didn't really know how to get along with both black and white. I had no idea what I was doing. I wanted so very badly to, and we'll talk about this too, but I wanted so very badly to assimilate myself with the white kids, but ended up naturally gravitating to the black friends that I made. But that was something that was totally new for me then too, because look at IC and then look at Houston. Like, when did you start IC? When you were little? Oh, shit. Okay, so you were, like, with those original... Okay, okay, I forgot that. So I have known... Yeah, it was for sure, because I have known my classmates since I was a baby, you know? That was huge, a really weird deal for me, because outside of losing the boys, that was normal. The girls, those were girls I had known. We got our periods at the same time. (laughs) You know, we were sitting at the... We was, you know, we had crushes on the same boys. Like, come on. Like, it was, you know, it was very, and those were people I had a lot of firsts with, you know, as far as, let me think. So my eighth grade class trip, Brittany Gaston and I, we're not friends anymore. So if that's out there, that's out there. I don't care. But Brittany Gaston and I were very close at the time. And we were on the little ride that takes you up the, it's like the little pods and it takes you up the, um. I don't know who that is. It takes you up the St. Louis Arch because our class trip was to St. Louis. And so we were in there and it was me and Brittany and who was my boyfriend? I don't even remember who my boyfriend was. But me, Brittany, Colin and Cade, I'll never forget this. And we were all in the same pod. And like Brittany and I was sitting in that pod making out with our boyfriends, riding. But that's a lot of firsts for me. You know what I'm saying? Like that was a lot. So leaving that life that I knew and was so very comfortable with these people that I was super comfortable with and then going to Houston where I ain't know nobody and we had to be there at seven o'clock in the morning you know I hated that I absolutely hated that I was used to eight eight thirty and we was I was good for the rest of the day I hated having to think about what to put on in the morning I hated having to think about what my hair looked like I hated that I wasn't there with people that cared about me and people I cared about and also kind of resented the fact that when I got there and started playing volleyball, I wasn't who I was when I was at IC. All of these girls were good. All of them were great. Actually. Um, Houston was probably one of the top ranked teams at the time in the state. Um, And so I went in there, you know, thinking I'm hot shit. And then I got there and fast forward to summer We get to summer and I try out for the team and they, by default, put me on JV while they work out some of my paperwork with the state. No, I ain't fucking with that. So I make, yeah, yeah, this is (laughs) bullshit. Paperwork and air quotes. (laughs) It was, it was paperwork. No, I don't believe you. I believe you didn't want to put me on your team and that's fine. If you didn't just say that. Right, right, right. I had friends out there at the time that were really kind of advocating on my behalf to kind of be like, yo, Coach Becky, you tripping. I don't really know what you're doing. You knew this girl was coming from IC. You were ready for her to come from IC. You had seen her play. You know what she can do. What the fuck are you doing? So (laughs) I feel like 
I've been saying this a lot lately, but I feel like the universe and divine intervention kind of kicked in on my behalf because I tell people I was injured my senior year. That's not true. I was actually injured going into my junior year. So I hurt my knee shortly after making the JV team. And you Um, were playing on it? And I was playing on it for a minute, but then I stopped. I stopped. I quit the team. I said, fuck it. If that's, if this is how it's going to be. And if you can't appreciate my talent at this moment, I'm bullheaded. You know, I was already stubborn as fuck because I shouldn't have left IC and my mom kept trying to get me to stay. And I was like, nah, I'm leaving. And I got to Houston, absolutely hated it. And I feel like it was kind of karma. But after I quit the team, I fell into probably the deepest depression of my life. Um, That's not true, but um, but one of them for sure. Um, So I was depressed. Yeah, I was depressed and not going to school. Um, Actually, had stopped going to school for a minute. And this is why you were in high school. Uh huh. Yeah. So this is we're still high school, but um, all of this time, junior and senior year, I maybe was at school. What do you go to school? One hundred and eighty days. Maybe at school one hundred. I'm pretty sure I was this close junior year for sure for having to repeat junior year because I was never going to school and then senior year rolls around and I did not walk at graduation because I'd never went to school never went to school I failed two of my classes my senior year and had to do summer school after everybody had walked at graduation so I did all the things I have to kind of rewind too again but I did all of the things that high schoolers would do like go to prom and shit like that. Uh But I was never going to class. I never went to school. And during that time, this was bridge builders time. So I had made friends at other schools. So I was, during that time, I was best friends with a girl named Camry Porter. And Camry and I are still very close to this day. But she and I spent so much time together that I spent most of my time out at Whitehaven. Um, so I was always in Whitehaven and I was hanging out with the Whitehaven school kids. Like I was, I'm always out there. I never wanted to go to school. I hated my school. There was no point in me being there. My life was in Whitehaven. I didn't give a fuck. Um, and then going into senior year, I got pregnant. Um, and that was a, a really big life changing thing because I'm sitting at the pediatrician and I'm like, I'm getting cramps, but I'm not getting my period. And I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on. And to me, sex is sex, but it wasn't sex is going to lead to a baby, even though I knew sex led to babies. No sexual education whatsoever. Like uh, none whatsoever. We were talking about and making fun. I think we were making fun of Alex in sex ed with um, Coach Healy or whatever her name was from PE, we were always making fun of Alex because she had the pencils and she kept pretending to stab herself. That was an always type of thing. Um, so I don't ever remember learning in class. I just yeah. remember sitting around and laughing and making fun of people. I was a bitch in high school. <laughs> so I, that's what I, I remember. We all had our moments. We definitely did. Um, so going into senior year, I had met a boy from Lausanne and I was all smitten and really in love. Um, and never really took the time to think about what the fuck we were doing. And so wound up, got pregnant, going in, we were, we at school year had started, school year had started. Um, we were, this was early, maybe, no, this was early September for sure. Early September, I'm finding out that I'm pregnant. Um, it's my senior year of high school. We're leaving the pediatrician and my mama is like, you ain't having this baby. 
So this was a, let's go. I'm, I'll make you an appointment at Planned Parenthood. It's so good. You have that relationship with your mom. It is. But at the same time, I kind of hate, she never really asked me what I wanted to do. Granted, That's true. I'm, That's true. I'm grateful for her taking the initiative to do what needed to be done. Um, and I hate to say it like that because a lot of people are so, oh, pro-life and I'm not gonna, you don't kill a, a heartbeat and I'm cool, fine. That's your choice. But that's also a choice, you know? Right. Um, so at the end of the day, you're kind of pro-choice. But um, it just, at that time, I wish I would have had more time to wrap my head around what was happening because it moved. we moved very quickly. I walked out of the doctor's office and I think my mom made me an appointment at Planned Parenthood the next day. Wow. Um, so there was no real time to talk about it. I took two weeks off of school um, and took my medicine and made sure that was a private thing. It happened at home. Um, and I can guarantee you out that with volleyball and having to go get an abortion and never being able to talk about my feelings, I think that is what, I know that is what triggered my depression for sure. Totally. Yeah. Um, and then senior year was just something that was, I feel like it was supposed to be a certain way. I'm supposed to be enjoying this time with my friends. It's our last year together. Cause I know we ain't going to school together, you know? So I wanted to be able to do that and I couldn't, you know, um, outside you of like, in it. Yeah. The I hated it. Um, and I hated school, but I was in such a deep depression that I didn't give a shit. You know, I didn't care about making the memories. I didn't care about, and I had so many memories to make that year with, I had a boyfriend, we were going to prom together. Um, we went to both proms together. We went to, I was a debutante that year. Um, so what does um, that mean? Like fancy? It's super fancy. Um, <laughs> But it's this like high society type of thing Ooh, girl. That, you, that you would do. You you wear white dresses and you know you have it's a cotillion and I, I oh, feel like, like the ball thing or yeah. like yeah okay. that. So my boyfriend was my escort for that and we were always together and it was super fun. But then I also had a feeling that some shit was happening with him. And so it turns out he was cheating on me with my best friend. Um, But that's okay. But I think shortly after my debutante ball, I tried to kill myself Um, and was very stupid about it too, because I feel like in a lot of ways it was triggered by a breakup. Um, and not really thinking about everything else. Um, I didn't care about the other stuff that didn't hit me until I was an adult, you know, my abortion and quitting volleyball, it didn't register in my mind that that was something to be depressed about, but I do know that it's what kickstarted it because I stopped feeling like myself, but I think my breakup was my breaking point. Um, and so, I tried to swallow a whole bunch of pills um, and I was on my fo- on the phone with my ex at the time. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to do it. You know, it the one that you me. got pregnant with. Yeah. No. So <laughs> this is funny because I was a slut. Um, <laughs> I had sex with a guy that I had met at Lausanne and then we had, he had gone off to college. And so when he found out I was pregnant, there was really nothing for him to do because he wasn't yeah. there. Um, 
And so when I got the abortion, we had had a conversation about him taking the baby. He was like, if you, if this isn't something you want to do, you know, I got you, I will take care of it. Just give it to me and my family. And I was just kind of like, this is something that kind of has to happen. Um, not really anything up for discussion. I'm sorry. I couldn't include you in it. My brain is not mature enough to think that you're, that's something you need to be included on. Um, and so after that we had kind of fallen off and I started dating my boyfriend and he went to MUS at the time. Um, and we started dating and he had been my best friend for years before that. And we had this really weird conversation shortly after I told him that I had gotten pregnant and he was like, I would have been the dad. I would have taken care of it. And I was just kind of like, okay, I guess we can date. So (laughs) we dated. Um, and it was the worst relationship of my life. (laughs) Um, so that was, um, a good year or so worth of time of me going through a whole bunch of shit and then hitting my breaking point in April and spending basically the last three, four weeks of school at Lakeside. Um, we were graduating May 7th and I went to Lakeside April 15th. Um, and did their outpatient program, but stopped going to Houston. Uh, and they transferred my work to Lakeside and I would do, I would go to school at Lakeside all day. It would be eight to five, actually. It was like going to work. Did you do like an inpatient thing there? I didn't do inpatient. I just did outpatient. Um, okay. And, and that's I, where you just, you don't stay there. You just go. Mm-hmm. Okay. You go and it's like, it's like going to work. So I'd get there at eight. My mom would drop me off and then I'd leave at five. Um, and so what you did was, um, in the morning you did, uh, your homework, whatever school work you had, that's what you worked on. And then the rest of the afternoon was spent in group. Um, so I spent, and I'd have to do multiple groups and then I'd have to take time with the psychiatrist to talk to him too. Uh, and so that was what my life looked like. Um, and I was diagnosed at that time with severe anxiety and depression. Uh, and kind of, I feel like I let that, I feel like I wore that on my back. Like you would name, like you would wear your name across like your back. Like your identity or something. Exactly. Like um, I'm Ingram and I, I'm depressed. Yeah, exactly. Um, And taking that to college, I didn't even want to go to college. Um, Going to Murray was a last resort because my GPA was shit. Uh, and I didn't feel like I could get into another school. Um, so I went to Murray and started meeting people and kind of getting back into a groove of which I feel comfortable. I was meeting friends. I had a boyfriend again, you know, I was happy, um, or at least as happy as I thought I could be. Uh, and the first two years of school, first two, three years of school, I was an athletic training major. I had no idea I wanted to do psychology despite going to orientation and writing down psychology on the paper. Um, I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. I'll write down psychology. And then all of a sudden I was like, Ooh, let's take feet. Um, so that was definitely fun for the moment, but I think I was very into it because at the time I was just kind of, I was hot in the pants. You know, I really wanted to be around the boys. I wanted to be around the athletes. And it was like also during that time where I felt like I was beginning to, not beginning because I feel like my feelings for women were always suppressed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a time where I felt myself uh, finally 
coming into my attraction to women, but not really acting on it. Um, and so I kind of feel like I was hypersexual in a, in a sense, you know, um, because I made sure to spend as much time around boys as possible. And I feel like I was doing that to kind of hide the fact that I had mm-hmm. crushes on people or I was interested in women at all. Um, so, oh, let's see. Junior year of college, I decided to change my major. And I changed it to psychology. Um, And it was the best decision I ever made because I absolutely fell in love with it. The only thing I could not get down was statistics. I absolutely hated (laughs) statistics. It was awful. I did not understand what the fuck I was doing. And it makes sense now that somebody's not trying to break it down to me like I'm an idiot. You know, I know how to do it now. But at the time, I was like, girl, I don't know what you're talking about. I had to take statistics several times because I was like, this does not make sense. But classes like lifespan development and um abnormal and things like that those were the things where I was like yo I like this so getting into it and kind of learning about mental illness is it was something that was always in the back of my head I was like this I know what depression is obviously I know what anxiety is obviously I know that bipolar is not just hot and cold. Like I get these things, you know, I'd really like to make sure that other people are aware of what mental illness is and can be and what it can look like outside of these stereotypical norms that we have, you know, Um, and these stigmatized things that we have for, we have such stigmatized ways of figuring out how somebody might be crazy and cuckoo and whatever the fuck. Um, and that irks me, you know, yeah. so that was something that at the time I was like, yo, I hate when you call somebody bipolar. Cause I know that's not right. I hate when you call somebody a schizo. Cause that's not right. You know, there were things that I was like, are there something in this that I can advocate for? So I yeah. finished up that degree. It didn't take long. It took me three years after I finished my um, well, not after I finished mine, but after I changed my major, it took me three years to finish. So altogether, it took five years to finish school. Um, but <laughs> when I left, yeah, you know, I really expected it to be six or seven. Seriously. I hated school at the time. So I was like, six Seriously. or seven, that's good. We're good. If these get degrees and I'll get out of there. Um, so, you know, I was good with that. And in my opinion still get degrees because it got me mine shit and don't nobody ask me questions about it so you know <laughs> no, oh, nobody's like what's your gpa what was your gpa are you sure you're smart like no <laughs> I ain't playing with y'all so anyway i um after graduation i moved home for the year uh, i graduated in 2016 from murray state and moved home to memphis uh and immediately started working at bridge builders um cool Bridge Builders was so much fun because it was yes. fun when we were in school. And then it was even more fun to be on the other side of it, facilitating this growth within kids. So you um, got to be like a fit, like, like when we I had the group leaders. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. So I didn't do t- 11th and 12th grade, but our year going into it, I think they started in 2009, 2010 ish. They started seven through 10th grade. So I was co-facilitator for seventh through 10th grade sessions. Um, and it was awesome. I loved yeah. it. <laughs> I loved working with my little babies up until my 10th graders. Like they watching that progression in them is what originally prompted me to think I wanted to work with kids. Mm-hmm. 
And then I started applying for jobs during that time um, because I knew Bridge Builders was going to end in August. So I was like, okay, I got to find a job. So I applied for Youth Villages and Lakeside. Youth Villages has a terrible reputation amongst people that work there, not necessarily amongst the people that do the work uh-huh. um, or, excuse me, that's not true because that's the same thing and I sound stupid, but um, <laughs> not necessarily about the work that's done, but the people that work there complain heavily about their residential facilities because the kids aren't being reached in a way that sits well with them, if you think about it. Um, because I don't feel like any kid is a bad apple unless totally. they were literally genetically born to be a psychopath or antisocial personality disorder. Unless they're born with something in them that's just a little bit off, an extra chromosome, whatever. If they are born that way, no child, I mean, outside of that, no child is a bad apple. And there's I don't no think so either. You can't, there's no reason that you can't pour certain things into a child to make sure that they get to where you think they need to be or where they need to be ultimately. But I feel like people get into the work because it's a job and not because it's something they're passionate about. You mean like the money or like just a career that sounds like teachers too. Yeah. Just, I mean, just to have a job, they do it just to have a job, not because it was something they were ever really interested in, but, Oh, I see, I can apply for this and I meet the uh, criteria. I'm gonna go for it. And I feel like that attitude is exactly why kids don't, they don't meet you where you're trying to meet them or, you know, they don't, (laughs) I'm trying to think of the word and I can't, but they just, they're not receiving whatever you're trying to give. Because mm-hmm. they know you're not genuine with your intentions. I feel and that, I yeah. I feel like you have got to mean what you say and say what you mean when it comes down to dealing with a life that can be as fragile as someone dealing with mental illness. And the majority of the kids that are going through Youth Village's programs are in the foster care system. So they've got a lot of trauma going on in just the sense that I've been separated from my home. I've been separated from the people that I care about or that I think care about me. Or I may have been in a situation where those people that I thought cared about me didn't care that much and they were neglectful or abusive or my surroundings with them in general just put me in a shit place. People don't think about that when they think about treating children. Some do, but not a lot of people when they walk into residential facilities like Lakes or not like Lakeside, but like youth villages, they don't automatically walk in thinking each one of these kids needs love. Taking that into account. Exactly. They walk in thinking, what little badass kid I got to deal with today? You know, they go. Right. It's like, don't give them a reason. Don't give them a reason. They feed. (laughs) Feed off that energy. And if you're gonna go in there and be a little cunt, they're gonna be a little right. cunt right back. Like, right. don't don't do that. Come on. And I feel like because but because I was hearing from people how bad youth villages could have been or might be, or uh-huh. oh, one of the texts was messing around with one of the kids, or one of the kids sexually assaulted one of the texts, blah blah blah. You shouldn't work there because it's dangerous for women. 
okay, whatever. But I'm listening and I'm gullible at the time, so fine. So Lakeside offers me a job, Youth Villages offers me a job, and I go with Lakeside because I don't really know what I'm getting, but I know I leave at the end of the day and I don't have to stay. Right. Um, so I got out to Lakeside and worked the 3 to 11 shift. Um, and I, that was the worst shift ever. Don't ever work 3 to 11, no matter where you are. It's awful. You lose your whole life. <laughs> um, but you make a little bit more money than 7 to 3. So <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed my job at Lakeside. I worked on the high-functioning unit, um, and I was on the adult male side. Um, so High-functioning just means like they have mental illness, but they're able to do like day-to-day things. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So high functioning is for anybody that is living with mental illness, but can still complete their daily living skills. So I can still wash myself. I can still eat by myself. Um, my psychosis is under control. Um, I'm regulated on my medication. So I am adherent to my treatment plan basically. Um, and so that is, uh, and I would, f- I went back and forth because there was a male hall and a female hall. So I went back and forth between those two halls most of the time, but my primary unit was the male side. Um, Lakeside has, I believe six units all together, five or six units all together. There is their geriatric unit, which is for, obviously it's for older, um, people. I think it starts, they start accepting people. They can be young. Um, geriatric just essentially means you need a little more care than everyone else um, because you can have young people on geriatric unit, but these are people that cannot do anything for themselves. Okay. So on Gero, you have more people that are equipped to handle somebody that might use the restroom on themselves. So I have to wipe you or I have to feed you or I have to bathe you, anything like that. Um, so I never really went to Jero. It kind of actually scared me a little bit. Um, and I think it scared me a little bit because I don't like seeing old folks like that. Um, it is a lot like, to like watch and sit with like, okay, you're going to die soon. And that's hard. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Or like just they're knowing, suffering. Yes. They're suffering and knowing that like their family wasn't always coming to visit them. Like that was yeah. just I know you like just know like yeah, their whole like life, and you're just like, oh my god, they're just having a horrible time, and they're probably like, turn on my story. I'm about to throw my poop at you. That's what you don't know. Like you just <laughs> so <laughs> my family. <laughs> Fuck my family. I don't even know who they are. I'm poop right now. Um, so that happened a lot. <laughs> you also had like a lot of old people that were very sexually active and then just. Oh, <laughs> so weird to think about I could not do it so anyway so um other than Jero we had a total recovery unit or total recovery program which was um those that were dealing with dual diagnosis or substance use but mostly just substance use so that was kind of our detox wing um but if you did have a dual diagnosis and it for anybody that doesn't know what a dual diagnosis is, that means you are dealing with both the mental illness and a substance use disorder. So you can be alcohol. I don't like the icks. So you can have, I, I'm see, are you you're schizophrenic? No, I don't like, I don't like icks, you know? Icks are ick. Yeah. The icks are ick. I hate <laughs> labeling people. Sure. Just like I told you earlier, I hated 
being Ingram and being depressed. I hated that 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 label. So I don't like the icks. I don't like schizophrenic. I don't like alcoholic. I don't like, you know, drug addict. I don't I don't like any of that. <laughs> so I uh try my best yeah. to steer clear of that type of vocabulary. But um yeah. you will have people that have alcohol use disorder um or uh be heavily addicted to some type of drug, anything like that on total recovery my unit was west that's what they called it like i said it was high functioning adult unit um you had the child and adolescent unit lakeside takes kids as young as three which is oh, wow. very scary to think about um but we had had kids at some point in time walk up you know and be like he'd be three and this is the cutest little thing in the world but he'd walk up and be like i tried to kill my baby brother you know, and that's scary when you hear stuff like that. Yeah. And that right there is exactly how I figured out I didn't want to work with kids um, because it was the most gut wrenching thing to hear from a child. Um, him not understanding why he was in this place, but knowing he didn't want his baby brother around, but also not being able to or actually being able to effectively communicate that to somebody, you know? I don't like my baby brother, I don't want him. I told my mom and daddy not to have him and they had him anyway and I didn't want yeah. him, you know? But oh that's also God. really scary because kids have a lot more functioning than we realize that they have or that we give them credit for having because we've done all these studies to tell us that kids can't do for themselves. But in actuality, kids are very intuitive and they know exactly what the fuck they want and when they want it. And they totally. may not be able to tell you what they want, but they can tell you what they want. <laughs> you, just you, know? listen. you just have to listen. It might, it might come out as jumbled up words, but you just have to listen or they'll show you in their actions. Just like we as adults show people in our actions, what we totally. do or what we want. So, um, I don't know why I never started rolling my blunt. But, um, Girl, do you need to? <laughs> I feel like it. But so, um, other than that, there was also the most acute unit at Lakeside, which is called East. East, and when I say acute, um, for anyone that doesn't know acute, that means you are the worst off. You are low-functioning. Um, typically in the middle of a psychotic break, not psychotic, I don't like icks, but in the middle of psychosis, um, dealing with mania, um, these are where you would have your non-adherent people that are dealing with schizophrenia, um, people that are dealing with active hallucinations, um, be it auditory, visual, or tactile. Um, they are they literally think that whatever they are dealing with in that moment is exactly what their reality is, despite the reality being completely different. Um, and so these are patients that think that if they turn on the TV, the TV and who's in the TV, they're out to get them or somebody programmed their TV. And this is typically something that's um, in conjunction with schizophrenia, but they think that the TV signals and waves are trying to transmit to their brain. And so they're trying to, the TV is brainwashing them. So they can't have on the TV. If they sense that you don't want to be there, they feel that. And they're like, Ooh, you have to give me two. I don't trust you. I can't fuck with you. I don't want to take my medicine because you're trying to kill me. My medicine yeah. is what 
you're putting this in my body and it's it's the worms that's in my body trying to eat you know it's 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 hallucinations it's talking like you cry it's word salad it's all types of things these are also people that are bipolar and dealing with their manic phase at that time you know so they are all over the place they are hypersexualizing everything um they aren't taking their medication because they feel super super creative they think that they can do whatever they are hyper religious they think they might be god you know there's there these are things that are happening to people that are non-adherent or just don't actually know that they have this mental illness and a lot of these mental illnesses go undiagnosed or overdiagnosed often sure. um but so at that time working in that environment I didn't like, obviously I didn't like being a tech and it wasn't just because I wasn't making the money. However, techs do become very involved with their patients because they see them on a daily basis. And if you're at Lakeside, you can stay for as short as three days or as long as 60. You know, it just kind of depends on how your insurance works and it kind of depends on how you're doing as far as treatment is concerned. Um, But a lot of these moments were moments getting to know patients and patients almost like becoming family. They were there so often. We had a lot of people that we like to call frequent flyers that were there every month. You know, I'm going to come here, detox real quick and be right back out on the street doing the method I was doing before. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. See y'all then. You know, that is literally how a lot of my patients were. Um, You know, they didn't care really about the recovery. They cared they cared about getting high and then coming back down and then get high again. But at least they knew how to do it and they knew how to do it safely. They knew how to go with through withdrawals and things like that safely. Um, and at the time I didn't know what harm reduction was. So I didn't know how to be talking to them about stopping or lessening what they were doing. I just knew they didn't need to be doing the drugs they were doing. <laughs> Wait, so, what is harm reduction? Harm reduction is what you use when you are dealing with someone that is that has a substance use disorder it's what you can use when you can tell they're not totally ready to quit but they are on the right path to doing so so harm reduction in um let me think with like smokers so you would also call that a smoking cessation like to tobacco we're trying to stop you or cut you back from doing it so harm reduction is having this conversation where we're talking about you smoking and you tell me that you can go through two packs in two days and so instead of telling you to just cut it out cold turkey let's maybe talk about doing a pack and a half instead of two packs and let's see how that works so let's do a pack and a half every two days and then you tell me how you start to feel and then in a week we'll revisit and we can maybe talk about cutting it down to a pack every two days instead of a pack and a half. And then as we continue that, we'll continue to lessen the amount that you're taking or doing or smoking or whatever. So that is typically what harm reduction is. It's having that conversation and reducing, but reducing slowly so as not to harm them. Yeah, Um, it kind of seems like you're like kind of giving them that control and that power to empower them to like, that's cool. I like that. Exactly. And that typically tends to hold better with patients and clients that are going through a detox period. It works a lot better because they feel just like you said, they're in control of what they're doing. You can't tell somebody that's addicted to something to just stop. That's not how it works because at the end of the day, 
I'm an autonomous being and I have control over everything that I do. So if I'm going to stop, bitch, I'm going to stop when I want to stop. Okay. Right. Not because you told me to. All right. right. So that's definitely something. I just want to smoke one right now then. <laughs> right now. Don't, don't fucking bother me. I just, I said, I want to smoke. So I'm going to smoke. Okay. Okay. So, you know, that's just, that's a, a, a great way of, no, I don't want you to make changes. No. I was like, is that mine? <laughs> no, it's mine. I'm actually, I'm on my work computer um, because my computer is a little bitch. So anyway, um, I work really closely while I was out at Lakeside. I worked really closely with the social workers. You are almost like a team. You are constantly working with the psychiatrist and you are constantly working with the um, social workers because social workers are who are there to help discharge. They lead groups um, because the psychiatrist, if I'm being real with you, if you are ever in a treatment facility or a behavioral health facility, the psychiatrist come to see you about once a week. They are not there to talk to you. They are not your friend. They don't really care. I really hate to say that, but psychiatrists are some of the coldest people I have ever met in my life because like they're probably like the more like sciencey, like maybe like the medical, like, you know, the doctors that don't really like know their emotions. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head with it. They are extremely sciencey. They really only care about diagnosing and medication. That is uh-huh. it. What are your symptoms? Oh, okay. This would probably best work with this medication. You take this, I see you again in a month. Okay, cool. Like there is no conversation about it. So when you're talking to a psychiatrist, you can say, I'd be sad and I'd be crying and I don't really know where it's coming from. And they're going to treat the sad and the crying, but they're not going to, tr- they're not going to pinpoint exactly right. what's causing you to be sad and you to be crying. They don't care about that. So the medication is what you're supposed to be taking in conjunction with going to see a therapist, a psychologist, an LCSW, an LMSW, anybody with the right credentials to do therapy. Right. Because they can't write you medications. They cannot write prescriptions. And I think a lot of people also have that confused because they think that psychologists write prescriptions and they do not. Psychiatrist sounds like I write, I write medications. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, just, it sounds like it. I don't know what part of the word sounds like medicine, but it sounds like medicine to me. Maybe the truth. So, <laughs> that's how I remember it. Um, but psychologists are just there to help you figure out a treatment plan so that you can better gain control over your life. And during that time, if you're taking medication, they're supposed to work together because nobody is supposed to be on medication for the rest of their life unless they are dealing with a mental illness that they don't necessarily have control over. Schizophrenia and bipolar are medications that you have to, you have to take for the rest of your life. You have to. Um, and unfortunately they have not figured out another drug outside of um, lithium to really take care of bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder works in conjunction with a whole bunch of other medications besides lithium, but you still have to have a crap ton of medications. And those medications tend to dull the senses, which is why you always find a lot of people like perfect example right now is Kanye saying that they don't want to take their medications because it stifles their creativity. That manic phase that they're in is that creative phase. Oh man, you can come up with some brilliant ass shit when you're manic. You really can, but it's also nine times out of 10, a project that you won't finish. Most projects are not finished. Anyway, back to what I was saying before. Sorry to get off. (laughs) No girl, I love all of these things. 
<laughs> That's great. Cause I love to talk. Um, but so, um, after kind of working side by side with the social workers at some point in time, it just kind of hit me that they do exactly what I want to do without going to school for clinical psychology, without going to school for psychiatry, anything like that. They do exactly what I want to do. So I'm going to go to school for social work. So I decided so, to go, real quick, go ahead. I know you were kind of talking about the differentiation between at least a psychiatrist and psychologist. What about oh. what specifically differentiates a social worker from like a psychologist? Like, is aren't they just like kind of facilitators, like providing resources for, or, I mean, you're, you know, so I just okay. want to know. No, you're doing a really good job of explaining it. That's why I'm smiling. Um, <laughs> Because essentially, yes, they do do the exact same thing. One's just a psychologist and they may have gone to school for clinical psychology and uh, LCSW, instead of going to school for clinical social work, because you don't really do that, you instead spend the time getting continuing education units and credits and going to supervision with someone that is also an LCSW and of the same background. So essentially the difference is really nothing other than your title and your credentials. Oh, cool. Um, Oh, and so you can still you can still provide like therapy and counseling. Yes. Okay, yeah. cool. So and that's why I wanted to get into social work because with social work, there's a very broad spectrum as to what you can treat and what you can do. Um, and so you could literally be a social worker for dogs, or you could be a social worker for kids, or you could go to the hospital and be a social worker, or you could be um an admin like social worker and work in HR. I mean, there's a a broad list of things you could do with social work. Um, And so there's no real limit to it. You can go into forensic social work and become an expert witness. You can do all of the exact same things that a psychologist does, basically. Cool. Um, It's just a different amount of, it's a different amount of years in school, a different major in school, obviously, but also the time that you spend outside of getting your master's as a social worker is time that you spend dedicating to clinical work. So overall, I think reaching LCSW status takes a little bit longer than finishing a clinical psychology program. Um, and the, I'm trying to think. Clinical psychology, you would go to school for like you would be going for your master's. Um, It's the same thing. It's like a master's program. But when you finish with that, you're a psychologist versus when you finish with your master's, you then have to jump through all of these hoops to become a social worker, like a real social worker. You graduate and I am a master of social work. So yeah, I got my master's in it, but now I have to go and get approved by the board just like anybody else would in order to treat somebody, but I have to go and get approved by the board. And then I have to sit for my licensing exam. Once I get my license, I then have to start logging how many hours I work in a clinical setting versus a non-clinical setting. And then I have to log my hours as to how many hours I get by going to see um, or going to clinical supervision. And then once I've worked 5,000 or so hours, this is a lot. I mean, understandably. Yeah. Um, But once I've worked these 5,000 hours in this clinical like setting, then I can sit for my LCSW exam, but I have to study for it. So I have to study for this LCSW exam and then I sit for the LCSW exam and then I can't go back after that. Once you're an LCSW, you're an LCSW. All you're doing is paying your dues. 
Um, but you have to go through the hours, go through the supervision, go through the training, just like any credentialed person would do, go through all of those that time, and then you're complete. Um, you graduate from clinical psychology program, and I'm pretty sure, I'm sure you would sit down for a test to take to truly become a clinical psychologist, um, but you're a clinical, psych- excuse me, clinical psychologist, so you could easily start working with patients. Um, whereas with social work, I couldn't immediately start working with patients um, because you have to, if you're not in a a setting where you'd have a clinical supervisor, you can't practice There's because there's nobody to watch what you're doing. There's nobody to hold you accountable. There's nobody for you to consult. There's nobody for you to to have your back. If you fuck up, you fucked up. You know, if you told a patient that they could do this and they really couldn't do it or you misdiagnose them, but that's your ass and your license, you know? Yeah. And now you're getting sued for malpractice because you fucked yeah. up. Was treating people when you wasn't supposed to be treating people. So I don't really know why I picked something as grueling as social work, but I am grateful that I did. For sure. Um, so after deciding that I wanted to become a social worker, I hopped immediately into, immediately jumped into the idea of going to Tennessee State. Um, and I really wanted to go to TSU because it was an HBCU. Um, and I wanted, because I spent my life at PWIs, I really wanted to go to an HBCU. Um, for anybody listening that doesn't know what these acronyms are, PWI is a predominantly white institution. Um, and, and HBCU is a historically black college or university. Um, I really, really, really wanted the HBCU experience because I knew it was a little bit different than PWIs. And I wanted TSU because it was close to home. Um, and then I found out about Southern, um, and their, uh, Southern University at New Orleans, there's a difference. But <laughs> Southern University at New Orleans is in New Orleans, whereas Southern, um, the original Southern University and not a branch of it, is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, so they're just down the street from each other, but two totally different places. Not really, because they're the same school. But still. <laughs> um, so I went to visit TSU and was super uncomfortable. And I feel like I should have listened to my gut at that time to tell me that I didn't want to go to TSU, but I held on to it. I held on to it real tight. So then I went to visit Southern and fell in love with the city. Obviously it's New Orleans, fell in love with the city, fell in love with the school, went back for Jazz Fest in May of 2017, 2017 and knew I was going to school there in August. Um, that was just, that was it. I went for Jazz Fest. I was like, oh, I love this city. I love the food. I love the people. Yes. I feel like I'm home. This is the greatest place on the planet. And I knew I was going to Southern from there. And so I got to Southern. I moved into an apartment. I was living the life in New Orleans. I thoroughly enjoyed my experience there. I feel like I was not only taught social work, but I was taught social work experience from the black perspective, which is something that there are several schools in Louisiana that are great at social work, LSU, Tulane, Southern, they all have very great programs, but I can guarantee you the education that I got at Southern 
is hands down way better than Tulane and a hell of a lot better than LSU. And I say that because they not only taught me the book, they taught me how to connect with my patients, with my communities that I was working with. It wasn't a research-based type of program. Tulane is very research-based. They want numbers and statistics. No, I want to know the people. I want to know, at the time, I was learning about the New Orleans community, which is why I feel like I have such a strong tie to it, and I want to be back there so bad. But um, you need to get back there. I just gotta go. I love that city. And I love the city because the native New Orleanians taught me what New Orleans was all about. They taught me about the experiences after Katrina. They taught me about the experiences of how they come together for festivals and second lines and funerals and parades. They taught me a different way of life. And I feel like New Orleans is a completely different city and state as a whole I feel like New Orleans is a state in my opinion <laughs> but um but I feel like as a whole they are a completely different place and they are on a completely different level than the rest of the country and I know that sounds weird because Louisiana is actually a failing state it's a terrible state and the most of mo- most of the money that pours into New Orleans is tourist money you know, and they only pour it into the French Quarter. They don't give a shit about the rest of the city. They pour it into the rest of the quarter. I mean, they pour it into the quarter. They pour it into the areas where they know tourists right. are going to go, you know? The nicer areas, like around the universities and stuff like that, Tulane and Loyola, they're nice, you know, they're they're really nice, actually. And they're also heavily white. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is a statement to how badly the communities were treated after Katrina because people went in. Now, granted, the areas around the universities were always heavily white. They were always predominantly white. Um, but they didn't. The people that lost their homes in that area in Central City and in other areas like that. Was it Central City? What area? I'm trying to think of the areas that are around the universities and I'm trying to think of what it's called. Can you help me? Garden district. Thank you. I couldn't think of it for some reason. I can think of central business district and a whole bunch of other stuff, but I couldn't think of garden district. Garden district is heavily white. Like I was saying, whereas if you went to the seventh ward and Gentilly and things like that, they're predominantly black areas. And they're also areas that are closest to water and they flooded, they flooded. People lost their homes people lost their lives, people lost their families, and they never returned. And a lot of people fail to realize that when Katrina happened, corporations poured into New Orleans to buy up land because they knew people were never going to be able to come back and afford it. Insurance companies scammed people out of their money. People never returned to the homes that they had owned the land that they own. They went home and saw that their houses had floated down the street and were now in their neighbor's yards. You know, there's a lot of disenfranchisement that happened after that. And it continued and it perpetuated this life of disenfranchisement. So learning about that from people who experienced that that changes your life, you know? That changes everything because now not only are you hearing how it affected somebody, but now you're hearing about how to better treat somebody holistically, the biopsychosocial of a person based on a traumatic event. 
you're now having this conversation with someone who experienced something that was so heartbreaking and so earth shattering and life changing. And now you're learning how to treat them better. You're learning about the bio, you're learning about their, and when I say bio and when I say biopsychosocial altogether, that's the biology of someone, that's the psychology of someone, and that is the sociology of someone. That is how they move as a social creature. Um, and how they identify the communities that they are in, the people that they feel the com most comfortable with. That is the social of someone. The psychology is their brain, obviously. The trauma that they may have experienced, the things that they've been through, excuse me, that is all going to affect your, your psyche. That's all going to affect your brain. And then the biology. Let me think about what could have been passed down generational wise. You know, I have to think about what came from grandma and grandpa on both mama and daddy's side. I have to think about the fact that if you're raised in a single parent household, you really don't focus on the other parent, but you do also become heavily affected by not having that parent there. There are so many things that pour into the very essence of a person and research, just research, won't tell you that. Research will give you a hard statistic or a hard fact, but right. it won't give you the reasons that that statistic became the statistic. They won't give you the reason behind the fact becoming a fact. They just give you that blanketed fact, you know? So that learning that, hearing that, being able, and then also having professors that told me that I was great versus professors that wouldn't even bother to learn my name, you know, that meant a lot. I have professors that I still talk to now, you know, and granted, I got that at Murray and it was great, but it was only two professors versus still being in contact with all of my professors from Suno. You know, I had a professor who thought so highly of me that she recommended me to be the first person to intern at National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI for short. But that was the first time any Suno student had interned at NAMI and I was the first and that was because my professor believed and poured into me the knowledge and the time that it took to teach I'm not teach but just mold me you know I love that so of, much yeah a lot of professors don't do that but I feel like being at an HBCU they're invested in what comes out of that school because so much rides on what comes out of that school. HBCUs are so harshly criticized and audited on a regular basis because they're black institutions, you know? And white people didn't want no black institution. They didn't want that. They didn't think niggas needed to learn, excuse my language, but let's be real. They didn't think that we needed to learn the way that they learned. They didn't think we needed to know how to read and how to speak for ourselves and do what we were doing. So it was up to us to educate ourselves, to teach ourselves how to read, to teach ourselves how to write, to teach ourselves to become twice as good. We had to do that. And in order to do that, we had to create institutions where we felt safe and comfortable and heard and not excluded from the work just because we look different. So going to an HBCU not only gave me a shit ton of pride, but it also gave me an education that cannot be matched, in my opinion. I could go to Harvard tomorrow, and that's great. Y'all know some shit, but I know some shit, too. Totally. You know? uh, I'm so happy for you. And you're hearing, like, this whole thing. I'm just like, holy shit. I'm so I, 
I have to do this. It meant a lot to me that you asked, but also the sense of being able to talk and be able to be as candid as I'm being right now. Not a lot of people allow that or not a lot of people want to hear that. So like I said before, like I truly appreciate you providing this platform to amplify my voice because I feel like my voice is definitely, it needs to be heard sometimes. (laughs) You're like, it's not being heard. Should I be louder? Do I need to speak louder (laughs) just in case you might be deaf? Because you must be missing what I'm saying. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? So, you know, it was definitely after Suno and after graduating, I feel like I walked differently. And I don't know if that makes, yeah, I was about to say, I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like I carried myself with a different type of confidence. And I've always been outspoken. I've always been opinionated. I've always made sure people heard me. I'm loud right now on the phone and I'm never (laughs) normally this loud. That's a lot. But like, you know, it's just, I I had a different swag about myself. And then I graduated and NAMI, my internship offered me a job and I was super excited about that. But I have to let people know that if they think social work is just taking people's kids, it's not, obviously we are not just- You're talking about like DCS? Yeah. And we're not just Department of Children and Family Services. We're nothing like that. We are so much more. We do a lot more. But it is majority case management. We do a shit ton of case managing. I feel like I am still case managing and I'm not case management right now, you know. Um, But at NAMI, they gave me my first job and it was a case management job. And I was a mental health case manager. And it was the most rewarding excruciatingly annoying thing I've ever done in my life because not only are you now living for yourself but you're living for however big your caseload is you are making sure that they take their medications in the morning and then making sure they fill their pill box for the rest of the week and then you're making sure they take that pill box home because even though they filled it they may not remember I worked with patients that were severely mentally ill. And I don't like to say that you see them every day. Okay. Every day. So where I worked, it's unique. It's what you call the Uptown Friendship Club. Um, And so these patients were not patients because there we call them clients. I have to get used to the lingo. It's different everywhere. Sometimes you don't want to use patients because if you use patients, they feel like they're at the hospital and they're not. Mm -hmm. They're independently living their life. So we call them clients. So my client base was chronic mental illness, um, but people that were semi midway functioning type of levels um they could do for themselves but not all that not without help um they could cook they could clean they could do whatever but the friendship club also helped to teach them those daily living skills so they'd come to the friendship club every day and they had certain chores or certain jobs to do so they came to friendship club and in the morning we'd do group and they'd kind of hang out and do whatever um but lunchtime would roll around and we'd have people who worked as kitchen staff so they'd go in the kitchen and cook um and we they had somebody to oversee what they were doing but they cooked their own meals every day um they paid two dollars for their meals so they brought their two dollars they learned the way to exchange money and ask for goods and services and things like that with their money um they 
learn, like I said, how to cook for themselves. After we finished eating, they clean up the area. So they learn how to mop and sweep and wipe down the tables and things like that. And in the evenings, they were afternoons, they spent time on the computers, they'd watch a movie, they hang out with each other, but it was both community, but also a teaching and learning place. So they were able to be with the people that they've known for years. A lot of those people had been going there 20 plus years. They'd been there as long as I'd been alive. So they knew how to take their medications. They knew how to function. Some of them lived independently, so they had their own apartments. But these are your chronic cases of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, sometimes in conjunction with each other. So schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia and bipolar, but they're dual. Um, which is extremely difficult to function with. And my patients, oh, my client, oh, they killed it. They was always killing it. They were doing the best job ever. They could walk themselves to and from. They knew how to take public transportation. They love going out in public and having a good time. They, they were, unless you ran a conversation with them, you had no idea they had <laughs> a mental illness, you know? Um, but even sometimes in running conversation, you ask them, Hey, Kathy, how are you doing today? Oh, Miss Ingram, I'm fine. I'm good. How are you today? You know, uh, my cat, she did this, you know, they live a life. Um, and then you'd have patients that if you had a strict routine with them, they knew what to do. But if they deviated from that routine at all, they were completely thrown off their game. If they didn't come to the friendship club one day because they got sick, it was now we have to restart everything. We have to start from scratch on how we, on filling our pillbox and making sure we take our medications. Or we have to start from scratch on making sure that you go home and bathe. A lot of my pay, a lot of my clients, oh, they smell terrible because they didn't they didn't know how to go home and bathe. Or if they did, it was spot clean. You know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I had a patient who not a patient, a client whose hands were so deformed because she had stopped bathing, but she also had had a stroke. But because of how built up the dirt and things were on her hands, she couldn't really move her hands. Oh, so no. she had limited mobility in them. And most of it was because of the stroke, but a lot of it was because of how over time, she just hadn't been taking care of herself. So yeah. over time, they begin to build up and they get stuck in certain positions or certain ways or her nails were super long and dirty. It was always like that. But boy, was she, a, she was a feisty one. She was my favorite. Um, but she smelled really bad, really, really bad. And I don't want people to think that when we talk about mental illness or we talk about those that are suffering from a mental health type of disorder, that it's not okay to make light of certain situations um, because it's not something that's a death sentence. And I think that's important for people to know is that even though we're dealing with something we can't see, it doesn't mean that anything negative is about to happen. It's right. okay for me to say that my patient was funky. She was funky, you know, <laughs> and that's not a lie. I used to tell her all the time, did you take a shower today? Because you don't smell too good. There are ways of going about saying it, but you best believe I'm going to talk about it afterwards, you know, because you're not going to limit me. Ooh, that's good. You're not going to limit me from, um, 
from talking or sharing about my day. And it's not because I want to actively make fun of my patient or my client. No, I'm not doing that. But she was funky. Okay. And that was it. That's all we're going to say. So I don't want, I don't ever want people to think that when I talk about my patients and I laugh afterwards, it's because I'm laughing at them. I'm not, I'm not laughing at them. I'm not laughing at the fact that she can't really take care of herself in the way that she needs to. But I am laughing at the fact that nine times out of 10, she was a funky lady and we used to talk about that, you know? And that's okay, that's that's okay. So now that I am in Jack, so wait, I left my job at NAMI because I wasn't getting paid enough um, for the work that I was doing. I had a caseload of almost 40 clients and I just was not, yeah, I wasn't making enough money to be living for the people that I was living for. I had to make sure they made it to their appointments. I had to make sure that I, and I had to put them in my car in order to do it. Um, I took them for their biweekly injections. A lot of people were on injection type medication for schizophrenia or for whatever mental illness they were dealing with at the time. Um, and sometimes injections are easier for people that are non-adherent with their medication. So I took them for injections. I ran the friendship club on a regular basis because shortly after I started my job, they got rid of the majority of the staff that worked with me. So if you didn't have a license or a master's, you were out and it was rough. Okay. They oh, shit, I was, that's bad for the clients too, right? It was terrible for the clients. It was all full for the clients. So... That was a very, if you hear any ruffling or loud plastic in the background, my dog just got hold of a water bottle. So, and those are her favorite things. After that, I was essentially running the friendship club, making sure they made it to their places and things that they needed to do. And then also making sure to lead groups and still do the case management job that I had to do for $36,000. That was not enough. Damn, yeah. Also, you have to realize that in New Orleans, if you're not making $60,000 and living downtown, you cannot live. You can't. It's almost impossible because rent and gentrification has happened in majority of the areas that are down there, which happened after Katrina because before Katrina, prior to it, you weren't paying $10.25 for a shoebox. You might be paying $700. So after that's after Katrina and after gentrification of certain areas, prices skyrocketed. You started seeing different people and you started paying a lot more to live where you were living. So my rent was $10.25 and I'm bringing home $12.95. I have $200 till next week or till the week after next. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do because I also have other bills to pay. Right. So after that, I was like, I can't do this. I have to leave. I can go back to Tennessee and try again and then I'll move again later. But I need a job that pays a little bit more which is how we got to where I am now. <laughs> I am now at Christ Community Health Services. I absolutely adore my job um, sometimes because it's not always that great. Uh, it's a job that I had to, I had to learn to love the job that I have because it wasn't a job that I was used to. I was used to a very clinical um, and very hands-on type of job. And at this job, I'm not as clinical and I sit behind a desk most of the day. And I absolutely hated that. When I was at NAMI, I was on the move all day, every day. I was running around. I was doing stuff. I was frustrated at the end of the day, but I felt like I had done something. Yeah. There are days where I leave this job and I guarantee you, I probably sat behind my desk watching Grey's Anatomy for a majority of it and maybe saw two patients, you know, and that is difficult for me because I am used to working in a setting 
where I am eating up mental illness, enjoying it, not helping you sign paperwork and not connecting you to community resources. However, I've done that, but not, that wasn't the majority of my job. However, I just acquired a new program. So I will now be managing the Ryan White program. And for anybody that doesn't, and you're not really supposed to talk about it like that, but it's not like folks would know my patients, so it doesn't matter. But Ryan White, for anybody that does not know, is case management services for the HIV and AIDS population. So um, Ryan White is the name of the person who I guess kind of assisted with helping to begin this program, but it's essentially making sure that HIV and AIDS patients stay adherent to their treatment plans. They stay adherent to the medications that they're supposed to be taking while also working in conjunction with behavioral health. So they're treating this patient holistically. And for a lot of patients, it's kind of assisted them with living a longer life or living a, a, a life that has a little bit more quality to it. Totally. Um, because you are assisting them with getting all of their medications for free or for a discounted price. You're making sure that they talk to somebody about the stuff that they may be dealing with or experiencing. Some Ryan White programs assist with housing um, and things like that. And you're not supposed, you obviously are not supposed to discriminate against the people that you house or rent to, but you can run into some issues if having to disclose that you're a Ryan White participant. Um, and some people do because it's since it's a program and they're paying the rent, you have to disclose that you're a part of a Ryan White program. And for those that may or may not know, if they do know that it's someone that's living with HIV or AIDS, they can, they can make it hard for you. So do you think that's coming from like, uh, like assumptions about that community versus like actually like something actually happening. Absolutely. I absolutely. And we have to know that like the LGBTQ community has been chastised and demonized in a sense, but it's been that way for years. When HIV and AIDS first became a thing, they thought it was um, only a, only exclusive to gay people and for a while it was called something that had to do with gay people like it had gay in the in the wording of it until they changed it to HIV and AIDS it was called G something I don't remember what it's called but um it was it's something that's stigmatized and so you think that when you hear HIV and AIDS most people automatically because of stereotypical bullshit jump to think that someone is gay not an intravenous drug user not somebody who may have contracted it in the womb none of none of that goes through somebody's head oh i'm thinking prostitute when i hear right. HIV and AIDS i'm thinking gay you know and i'm thinking that you just disgusting and nasty and if i sit on the toilet after you oh my god i'm going to wind up dead the next day people are so fucking ignorant but like that Seriously. is that's that's literally what a lot of and it's the same with um not exactly the same but the same in a sense with mental illness because with my internship i worked with nami I worked for their homeless shelter. So NAMI in New Orleans is super unique in a sense because they house um, chronically homeless and, I'm sorry, yes, chronically homeless and severely mentally ill women. Um, And if you are trans, you can also be hired, I mean, not hired, but you can also be housed there as well, but it's a long-term residential treatment 
not treatment, but facility. It's a long-term residential facility. You can stay there for as short as three months or as long as a year. Um, and it's really just to help you learn how to transition from chronic homelessness to now self-sufficiency, taking care of yourself. So it's something that was super beneficial and helpful to the community. And it was needed because it was taking women off the streets, getting them clean and getting them housed. But because they were coming from NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, through a lot of the programs, this was the correlation I was trying to make. But um, but because they were hearing that they were coming from us, they would have issues finding housing. It's the same with Ryan White. They would turn them down because... Exactly. Clients and patients that are looking for housing, you may get to the last stage and be about to sign your lease and then they figure out where the check is coming from and they like, I don't know about all this. I'm going to let somebody else look at it instead. I'm sorry, it's already rented, you know? And that's bullshit. But that's what clients are dealing with, patients are dealing with on a regular basis. And nobody wants to fucking feel like a liability either. Like, they're like, sorry, this is like, like, where I'm at right now. Literally, and I hate that people don't think about it in the way that you just said it. Because often or not, you have people that are in this headspace that they're like, ooh, I can't believe you got a mental illness or ooh, I can't believe you got HIV and AIDS. And it's like, well, shit, bitch, I didn't try to have this. <laughs> like, you, didn't, you think I asked for this? You think this is something I wanted? Like, you upset that I got HIV okay, and depression, please. What? Yeah. Like, what? Well, thank you. I, I get this over the counter every day. My, I, I asked for hallucinations. I asked for right. not being able to get out of bed. I asked for a disease that could possibly kill me. Like, bitch, shut the fuck up. Nobody right. asked for something like that. Nobody right. asked to live their life that way. And nobody asked you to be an ass about it. You know, there's no reason. <laughs> Right. You can totally. keep your mouth shut. Do you know how much it costs to mind your business? Because I guarantee you it's free. You know? There's no reason God damn, I love you have to be like this. Let's be real. So I No, you're totally right. I I am happy to now have that program because it gives me the opportunity to do exactly or to talk in the way that I just said. Do you know how much it costs you to mind your business? That's the way I like to handle things because in no way are you or should you treat people the way that you treat them. There's no reason that you should be allowed to judge. There's no reason that you should, there's no reason you should be an asshole. Like right. there's just, there's not, you know, right. you didn't, you, I don't understand how people wake up some days and they're like, I'm going to be the meanest person on the planet and I'm going to make everybody's life a living hell. How do you live that way? That's why you got an ulcer and you're going to die early. Like, Seriously. why do you do that to yourself? I know it's like, you probably have mental illness too. If you're going to like, cons- consistently you think, think about fun, like that, right? Like, if you think it's fun to treat people like shit, nine times out of 10, you got some fucked up shit going on in right. your head too, you know? And maybe so, it's just, they just can't, they can't like identify because they re- reject any like, oh yeah, I might be fucked up too. But like, we're all fucked up. We are all fucked up. And so I think that it's, and I, I'm glad actually that you just said that because it's a, a I am a look at the big picture type of person, but I also like to see both sides of things. So I'm glad that you just said that because it allows me to see from a side of someone else where it may be something that they're dealing with, but not sure how to express it. So Mm -hmm. it could easily be something that 
throughout their childhood, they didn't know how to better treat somebody because they watched mom and daddy do it at home, which goes back into why I got into social work to begin with. I love to figure out why you are the way you are, (laughs) why your brain works the way it works, but why you are the way you are. Tell me about the traumatic shit that you had happen in your childhood or even things that you didn't realize were traumatic. Tell me about the way your parents communicated. Tell me about the way your family communicated. It all explains everything. It explains so much. It tells you so much. So my family was a family of yellers. So when I get upset, I yell. And my partner absolutely hates that. And I have yet, and I can tell you right now, I have yet to figure out how to be better in that sense because my first instinct is to yell. When I'm angry, when I am feeling unheard, my family, we talk over each other and we yell, baby. We are some yellows, okay? (laughs) But when we're talking to each other, even in regular conversation, our voice begins to escalate. It begins to... We get loud with each other. And then after we've gotten loud with each other and didn't hear what nobody said, everybody's sitting around saying, what? What happened? I don't understand. How did we get here? Because nobody heard anybody. But I get loud in my own sense because there are so many times where I felt unheard. You know, I yell because I feel like when when I'm yelling, ain't nobody about to tell me shit. I know you hear me because I'm loud. But I have to realize that being loud is not always the way that people communicate. I can't be loud with my partner because she doesn't fucking appreciate that. She hates being yelled at. And I don't know how to not yell sometimes. And so that's really difficult because now there's a breakdown in our communication and we might be fighting about something and I yelled and now I'm mad because she's telling me not to yell when in reality, I need to be mad that I didn't hear her. I didn't hear her. I didn't hear what she was saying to me. So I think that it's important that people not only recognize the feelings that they have within themselves, but where someone else can be speaking from too. Because far too often, there's a breakdown in communication because we weren't bothering to see the other perspective. Totally. You know, that saying where it's don't listen with the intent to respond, but instead just listen, you know, just listen. Because nine times out of 10, you'll gain so much more clarity if you aren't sitting there listening to somebody And then you're waiting to jump in at any point to say something. And I do that all the time. I don't, that's why I'm going to law school. It's the lawyer in me. I'm ready to yell, objection, because no, bitch, you're not. No, you're not right. So like, I'm ready for all of that. But at the same time, I have to realize that before I get in a courtroom, I need to know how to communicate with other people. And that means I need to listen. And I struggle with that. But I think had I never gone into psychology, had I never gone into social work, I would have never been able to sit down and have this conversation and tell you that with the insight that I have now, with the awareness that I have as to how I can be or how it can be my fault that there um, are, is a breakdown in communication. That I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation with you two years ago. I wouldn't have been oh. able to have this conversation with you a year ago. You know, I... I'm grateful for what I'm learning in the fields that I'm in because it gives me the ability to understand that obviously all of our experiences are different, but they bring us together in a really beautiful way because it allows us to learn. And I think my biggest 
turn on in the world is learning. Like I love learning. I love learning something new about somebody. I love going to school and learning something new about whatever it is that's different in the world. That's why I ate social work up because it allowed me to see things differently in the world, but it allowed me to learn differently too. Um, same with like philosophy. That was my minor in college because it allowed me to think outside of the box. It allowed me to know that we can be sitting here talking about existentialism and have completely different understandings of an existential crisis and what might be happening. We can be sitting here talking about the trees outside and have a completely different experience and perspective about why they grow the way they grow, you know, but that is the beauty of life. And that's the beauty of social work. I don't know any one thing about any particular person and getting to sit down with that patient or that client and learning about where they come from and what fuels their fire and what might have caused the breakdown that they had. Girl, I will eat that up any day, any day, because it's now I know how to speak to you differently. Now I know how to move with you. Now I know how to, now I know how to treat you better. If you think about it, which is how that pours into a lot of why I feel like we have issues within the communities that we have currently, the issues that we're dealing with currently across the world, uh, around the world and across the country, especially like racial tension. A lot of the things that we are experiencing currently is because we won't sit down and get to know each other. For sure. And that's why I'm, when you were saying earlier, you were like, I'm glad that we're doing this. And I really feel like how the fuck else are we supposed to understand each other if we don't listen? If we don't talk. Right. If we don't talk and we don't listen. Right. And I think that that has been probably my biggest motivator for wanting to speak a little bit more. Like I thought about starting a blog. I thought about doing a whole do bunch it, of do it, do it. I kind of want to. Um, and that right. might be next on my agenda. Uh, outside of studying for the LSAT, I really do believe that it's kind of that time. Um, but I feel like, I feel like I operate from a very unique place. And I say that because I went to IC and I spent my life being what I am now realizing in so many ways was a token. Um, I spent my life being the exception in a lot of ways. I know that a lot of my classmates aren't racist. I know that a lot of my classmates don't think of me as an exception in terms of, oh, well, you're not like normal Blacks or you're not like the ghetto Blacks. You're different. So you're unique. So you're the exception. I know not everybody thought of me that way, but I also remember comments like that being made to me. So I also now know how to hear those comments and funnel them. And then I also know what it looks like to not have comments like that, but instead have the love and nurture and proper education and confidence instilled in me to not have to deal with comments like that. I know how to carry myself. And now I, you know, I don't code switch, you know, at school, I used to code switch. And for anybody that doesn't know what code switching is, code switching is how I have done throughout this conversation where I'm speaking very professionally right now, but very quickly can slip into bitch. I don't give a fuck. Like it happens so very quickly. That is code switching and everybody can do it. But I feel like black people do it a lot more because we have to wear a mask in 
situations with white people where we might, we feel like we may be making them uncomfortable. Uh, I thank you for creating a space to where I don't feel uncomfortable with you, Madeline. Um, totally. totally. I'm, I'm glad that I can do that. And yeah, cause I'm always like, I'm always like wondering how, how can I like share that I want to create a space, but it's like, I know that I don't fully understand. Like I'm a fucking white girl, but I know, like, I know it doesn't matter, but I just, I I think I just get in my head thinking like. I think the simple fact that you get in your head about it and it's something that you think about means a lot more than someone who doesn't think about it at all. Someone who thinks that this space doesn't have to be uh, safe because you're my black friend. You know, I, right. you, you, you're the exception. So I don't have to talk to you any different or treat you any different than I would my other white friends because you're my black friend, but you're a different black friend, you know, whereas there are others who immediately get in a room with black people and they get tensed up and they get nervous or they get, you know, whatever, and they don't treat you like, you know what you're talking about. They don't talk to you with any type of respect. That's not a safe space. Totally. Um, but the simple fact that you take time to be introspective about it um, and that you want to create a genuine safe space, that's something, that's a vibe that can be felt. That's a vibe that you don't have to outwardly express because it's not about the expression. It's just about the mood and the way that you move, the way that whatever you exude in that moment is how someone else is going to feel. Um, it's the body language. It's you listening to me. Do you realize that you are currently leaned into this conversation and you have been for the majority of it? You I'm know, like, just like eating all this shit up. <laughs> I mean, I love but, psychology too, but anyways, but no, but just that being open, that body language. Oh, that's just plenty. I know that in that moment I can open up and feel comfortable and say, <laughs> but, um, but it just, uh, it's just something that you created a safe space. And that is something that cannot be matched. That's something that cannot be taught. That is something that no matter what, in times like this, people like me, need and you did it so good job <laughs> well, you, but like, and it's just like I just want I want that to be a movement like mm-hmm. why don't we create spaces and I mean like I get it but it's just I'm I guess I'm trying to figure out how how to make it like a ripple effect but I guess just doing it in the first place I feel like it's important in, like I was saying, times like this to sit down and have conversations and get to know each other because the biggest thing is I feel like this is going to sound really weird because not in nothing about me is about to make excuses for white people in their shitty ways because some white people have shitty ways. Totally. Um, but it is me saying that I feel like white people have been allowed to think of black people as exceptions because they have not been taught to sit down and have a conversation yet. They were still sitting down to get to know the person that they were getting to know and nothing about their perspective of that person changed just because of the color of their skin. 
It only changed after having a conversation about racism with someone that they realized they were treating someone as an exception or a token. There are plenty of people who do not realize they're doing that though. And they realize that they made friends with this black person to make friends with a black person. I am now friends with a black person. Checked it off the list. Checked it off the list. You have plenty of people who operate from two different ways. You have people who were raised to think that black people are ignorant and stupid and only like fried chicken and watermelon, all of those stereotypical bullshit things that people hear about black folks. Oh, they got nappy hair and they got big lips and fat asses and whatever. If you know anything about me, the one thing I don't have is a fat ass. So (laughs) the stereotypes are already irrelevant because they're not, they're not right. But I also don't like watermelon, ignorant bitch. Like, it just so, you know, it just, there are so many things that are so different and unique about each person you meet. If I can give you that kind of courtesy, I don't think all white people smell like dogs. I think some do, but I don't think they all do. But that's also, that's a stereotype in the black community. We think white people smell like dogs. Or when you hear us say, oh, there's some white people shit. That's a stereotype within the white community. But I don't, I mean, within the black community about white people, but I don't automatically walk up to a white person and be like, so you like skydiving? Cause that sounds kind of like some white people shit. Like, I don't do that. You like going tubing down the lake? Cause that sounds like the white people shit. Those are things that we say, but there are also things that we enjoy doing too. Right. Like folks for the longest time would tell you, oh, we don't go skiing. That's some white people shit. Bitch, I can't wait to go skiing. <laughs> I want to get on a snowboard and go skiing down some slopes. I love the snow. Yeah. So there are so many things white people that I did not sit down and do with <laughs> white people the same way that they did with me. When I sit down with a white person, I don't automatically think they voted for Trump. Nowadays, I kind of do because you can't be too sure. Like, <laughs> I don't automatically sit down with white people and think they did certain things because they white. So why right. would you sit down with me and think I do certain things just because I'm black? That's not how it works. I went to a predominantly white school my whole life. I was baptized Catholic. My mother worked a six-figure job. And yes, she was single, but it's not because she didn't know who my daddy was. It's because I'm adopted, bitch. Like, you have to think about the things that you're saying. And I think the minute you think about those things, the minute you think about the fact that this is a human, a person sitting in front of you, and not just a skin color, not just a color, oh, you'll be on, you'll be on the right track. You're on your way. Because now you're talking to this person as a person. Not as the stereotypical alien-like creature that I don't, I ain't never seen before, so therefore I don't know how they do. They're a person, just like you are. You yeah. That's all I can ever finish a sentence with, because there are too many times where I find that people are changing how they talk to me, changing how they interact with me, because they think I'll handle something in a way that a typical black, that's I don't like that, but like. <laughs> Um, their, their idea of a stereotypical black person, they think that I will operate from that place and therefore they treat me differently. Don't treat me differently. Walk up to me with the same respect you will walk up to your white CEO with. Right. Because I guarantee you one day I'm going to be your black CEO. I promise you. Nothing about the color of my skin is going to be because I'm damn good at what the fuck I do. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm proud yes. to be black at the same time. They just work, they go hand in hand, but they can be mutually exclusive. Totally. So it doesn't, 
what my worth is not equated to the color of my skin. Now, granted, I am pro black girl magic. Anything I do, I always attribute it to black girl magic. I attribute it to it being a black boss bitch. Like I will say that at the same time. I also know that regardless, if I wasn't black, I'd still be a boss bitch. Like I'm just real proud that I'm black. (laughs) It makes me happy. What I know about mental health makes me very happy as a black woman because I now have the power and the tools necessary to empower my community to learn about mental health, to know what they're talking about, to not think that it's something that you pray away, to not think that going to church is the only way you can handle your demons, your demons and the spirits that might be haunting you. In our community, we automatically say, oh, that's the devil, girl. You got to go pray that out. Mm-mm, that's the devil. That's the devil talking to you. Don't you listen to that devil. Really? Mental well illnesses like that? Devil. Huh? Mental illnesses like that? In our community, yes. So for black people, being depressed is something, oh, you just got to push through that, baby. Mm-mm, we all get sad. Come on, you got to push through I wonder through where, like, the spiritual intersection would be. Because, like, wouldn't you think that, like, God has, like, you, I don't know, like, you're created as God's child. So I'm just wondering if there's, like, an intersection between spirituality and I believe there is. I truly believe there is. And that's what I was about to say is sometimes in our community, we tell them to pray the demon or pray that spirit out or whatever. But in actuality, that voice that they very well may be hearing could be a demon and it could have been a hyper religious type of hallucination that they're having. But you diminishing it by telling them to go pray it away now makes them think, God ain't really got me the way that he said he got me or the way that y'all tell me he got me because he ain't making this voice in my head go away. So that is why I think it is so important that we as a community understand what we're dealing with, what we're what's what's going on, and to listen to the folks that's telling you, yo, I'm sad and I really cannot get out of bed, and it's not something that church going to church on Sunday is gonna help me with. Granted, in conjunction with, I don't so. Let me think. The AA and NA models are based on believing in a higher power. That's the only way you'll overcome your addiction is believing in a higher power. That faith is what carries you through. So within our community, I absolutely believe, and when I say our, I always mean to say black community, but within our community, I feel like we are far too often holding on to that belief of a higher power and letting that be the only thing that guides and carries us through. And then we don't feel like we need help for anything else. We don't need help from anyone else. I mean, I don't believe that that's the way we need to operate because God can absolutely see me through the issues that I might be dealing with. The higher power that I have faith in can absolutely see me through my issues, but I have to do the work on another end in order to continuously see myself through that issue. I absolutely believe that we should hold on to, or black people in particular should hold on to their belief in a higher power, but I don't think they need to diminish the idea that someone can be 
sadder than normal or that someone and not sadder because I don't want to diminish what it is to be depressed because being depressed is not just sadness. It's not just sadness. It's an overwhelming feeling of, I don't even want to bathe today because I don't have the, I, I cannot get out of bed. I don't want to eat today because I can't get out of bed or it's sleeping with a shit ton of food next to you because you binge eat because you are so depressed, but you don't want to get out of bed because that's too much energy to go to the kitchen. So I'll just keep all my snacks in my room with me. It's, having the TV on in the background is white noise because you have insomnia and can't sleep, but you don't really watch the TV because you can't focus on it because your brain's in such a fog. That is depression. And too often we give you one symptom and say, oh, if you're sad and you've been crying a lot, you're depressed. No, you're not. You're not. You're just sad and you cried a lot that day. And that's okay. That is a-okay. We cry. We get sad. That happens. But it is not the same thing as being depressed. It is far from the same thing as being depressed. You can be sad while depressed, but you can't just be sad and call yourself depressed. Right. It's not how it works, you know? And so within our community, I feel like it's necessary to identify the things that we are actually dealing with outside of just being sad in order to begin to have a conversation about how I need to handle that. The same with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is overly diagnosed in black men because things like weed can exacerbate the symptoms, the signs and symptoms, and it can typically cause them early onset with schizophrenia. It's typically diagnosed between 17 and 25 and obviously later in life or earlier, but most of the time 17 to 25. But if a young man has a psychotic break, a young black man has a psychotic break or may just get depressed or may be experiencing something that seems a little manic, but he's not really manic. He's just really smart and can kind of be out there and not really know how to control it. We're automatically diagnosing with ADHD as a child or schizophrenia as an adult. No, no. Schizophrenia is overly diagnosed, but it's a lot more than what people like to say that it is. Now, if he is walking down the street in wintertime clothes or in no clothes at all um, in the summer or in the winter, if I'm walking down the street naked and it's wintertime, obviously I'm not in reality. So therefore I may need to go get some help. Or if I'm walking down the street in my fur coat, um, and some sweatpants in the middle of 103 degree summer, I'm not right. I need to go get some help. And those are typically onset schizophrenia-like symptoms, signs and symptoms. But that don't mean everybody's schizophrenic um, or sick in general. Yeah. But I also feel like when we see things like that happening, we don't need to say, oh, he, he needs some help. He's a little touched. He's special. We need to do something about that. I don't know what to do, baby. Just go to church and pray that out. No. Go get him some help because he needs it. He may not have schizophrenia, but he clearly needs some help. And taking him to church and telling him to pray it out ain't the way to do it. Yeah. The education that we lack because science was such a white dominated area, they now don't know how to treat us because they're used to seeing it on them. Um, be it whether it's in healthcare or whether it appears differently in mental health care. It looks different to white people than it does to black people. All symptoms, all signs and symptoms aren't gonna be the same. Um, and I feel like the diagnostic manual is something that 
is in a lot of ways very whitewashed. It may appear differently for white people than it may appear for black people. And so it's important within my community to be very clear cut about what you should be looking for, but it's also very important to just simply educate in general. And a lot of us lack the proper education to know what it looks like to be able to express our, our feelings. Um, across the board, people are demonized and stigmatized for being honest about their feelings, men in particular, and so therefore they don't know how to talk about it. But in the black community, if you cannot carry yourself the way that you're supposed to as a man, you a bitch, you a pussy, you a hoe ass nigga, you anything like that. You're anything like that. And we are quick to demonize this man that now seems like he can't take care of what he needs to take care of. We got to stop that shit. Yeah. That's you so know? sad. It is. It's extremely sad. And it's sad because now you have this idea and a lot of it's goes back to the breakdown of the family structure within the black community, but it's not only that. And when I say that, this is during the time that welfare became a thing, very early on in the 1900s, becoming a thing, welfare and living on it. You could not have any semblance of a man in the house. And since black people were already so very disadvantaged- You could only be on welfare if a guy wasn't there. Exactly. Welfare was seen as something that women needed, not men, because men were should have been able to during that time go out, should have. Yes, thank you for the air quotes. But like should have, quote unquote, been able to go out, get a job and provide for their family. Point blank, period. So if you needed welfare, that means you didn't have a man. And if you had a man and were living on welfare, you were then milking the system. So you had to go to jail. So that is how welfare worked back then and it did not and it hasn't really changed much either because now when you look at the people that are living on welfare it's not always families it's single family household or single parent household with three kids running around because the dad is in and out of jail or in and out of their life in general or just going through a tough time but when you think about it the leg that black people start on versus the leg that white people start on, white people can start two legs down, two feet down to the ground, ready to go. They are starting this race and they are also already 10 laps ahead. Whereas black people, we starting with a peg leg and one foot on the ground and we are trying our best to get to you, but you are already 10 steps ahead, 10, 10, 10 laps ahead of us. So it's yeah. very difficult for us to catch up. So when I say things like we have to work twice as hard to get half of what you got, it's because we are literally working twice as hard to get half of what you got, whether it's half of the same pay, half of the housing, half of the whatever. We trying to get to where you at and y'all not letting us, if you think about it, or there are now we have plenty of us that hold our own selves back because we don't know how to to do it, but none of us were ever provided the proper tools or education to be able to do it. When totally. we were, when we were finally emancipated, it was it took years for certain slave um, slave owners to let their slaves go. They didn't tell them that they were free people. So now you're working on land and you're working for free, and you've been free for two years, and you're just now figuring out that you're free. That's why we celebrate Juneteenth. But it's different in certain places because still on Juneteenth, a lot of people didn't know they were free. 
Slaves did not know they were free, but we were also promised 40 acres and a mule. We were supposed to be equal. We were meant to be equal so that we could all start from the same playing field so that we could all have the same type of opportunities and experiences in life. And we never got that, which is why white black people scream for reparations all day, every day, because we never got that. Our slave owners got reparations for losing a slave. We never got paid for having to do work that we didn't come over here to do to begin with. You know, so now here we are in 2020 and black people are still living in the ghetto. They are still redlining properties and redlining is essentially marking up the price or cutting out certain people from living in certain areas so that it doesn't bring down the property value. So that's perfect example, Carrierville and Germantown and Bartlett annexing themselves from Memphis as to not be associated with black Memphians or with Memphis as a whole, because Memphis is ghetto and bad, and oh my God, when you go, you're gonna die. I hate people that say that. Um, but so, um, you have things like redlining, like I said, you have things like gentrification. So you're going into areas that were predominantly black, and you tearing down the house down the street because it's dilapidated and it looks bad, and you wanna go um, tear it out, gut it, and now you're going to sell it for 1.5 million, but all the houses around it going for 200,000. Bitch, what the fuck are you doing? So now you're driving up the property value, and now you're forcing black people out of their homes because they can't afford that 1.5 million dollar house down the street, and their neighbors that just moved in is a bunch of white cops, and they call the police, or they do what it's a bunch of Karens that live in that house, Karens and Chads. Bunch of Karens and Chads that live in that house, and they call the police on their black neighbors because they like to listen to music at night, or it might smell like weed. So, heard an 808. <laughs> you know, oh, good God forbid that the music plays past 1015. I don't like that. So, I'm in 37. Oh my gosh, you bleeped out the words to a rap song. I don't like that rap song. So, I'm going to call the police. And that is what's happening. And so, then you have people that are now losing their homes because the property value has gone up and because rent. Perfect example is the Mexican, Haitian-ish, South, South African-like hood that's right behind that Sonic over on Hollywood and, what is that, Union? Poplar? Is that Poplar? I don't remember. Yeah, that's right by my house. What did you say? They just hiked up the rent. And you know that the community that lives over there, nine times out of 10, they're either undocumented, don't speak a whole lot of English, or have lived over there for the majority of their lives and are living in the house with maybe eight other family members, but that's all they have been able to afford. I don't exactly know how much that price is of rent currently, but I know they just took it up. I know oh, it just yeah, went up. I think it was like went up to 900 or something. So they're forcing people out of their homes. And as you can tell, they've already started to redo the area, remodel stuff. I didn't even realize it was that many apartments over there until they painted them white. I have yeah. no idea. No idea. I always ever, always only really paid attention to like two or three different buildings, but never really realized that it was like 11 over there. Right. So you're forcing all of these people because you're trying to gentrify this area. You go down on broad and this white folks hanging out outside. That is what? That has never happened. When I was driving down broad, I was only going to Broadway pizza, but we wasn't getting out the car that often because what? Like you don't get out the car because there's nothing over here to see. And now it's gentrified and you got white people hanging out, but you got black people walking down the street or living on the street. And you got Seriously. all these white folks hanging out, walking down the street, drinking a beer and having a great time. But if I did that, 
I'm pretty sure I would get arrested. Yeah. I'm pretty sure if I looked like I was having a good time outside in this predominantly white area, I would probably be arrested or the cops would be called. I can't be joyous in this area because I have to be looking over my shoulder every 10 seconds because somebody might think I'm having too good of a time and they might call the cops. That's a problem. That's a, you yeah. know? That's a huge problem. I don't even remember how I got here, but that's a problem. <laughs> You're here and I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad you said that. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that I don't think people really think about or they're so busy in their ideal of a world head that they don't bother to see it. And too often now that we are realizing um, how the world works, you have far too often people telling you, I've never um, experienced that, so it can't be real. My boss is a perfect example of that. Um, and I know whoever's listening to this is never going to go back and tell my boss they don't know who she is. But my boss is a perfect example of not seeing um, certain things in there. So therefore, she doesn't think they're a thing, you know, um, racism in particular, because she grew up in small town Jackson, despite it being small town Jackson in rural Tennessee, which is racist as fuck. She never saw racism or never really experienced She's it. She's white. Oh, she white. never saw racism happen. Exactly. So since she wasn't looking for it, and since she didn't have to train her brain to think that way, she thought that it wasn't a thing. We went to, and this was a, I pointed this out to her after it happened, but I pointed it out to her. We went to the McAllister shortly after opening our clinic up here and Christ Community just opened this East Jackson location. And for anybody that doesn't know Christ Community, we service low-income populations. We service low-income populations on a sliding scale fee to make sure that they have access to affordable health care, affordable dental care, and affordable behavioral health. They need it. It's necessary. So we put ourselves in the most disenfranchised of neighborhoods in Shelby County and here in Jackson now, and that's East Jackson. So we treat low-income people, but anybody can come to us. But our primary targeted focus is making sure that people have access to affordable health care. If you don't have insurance, great. You don't even need to pay when you first come in to see us. We just want to make sure you're straight, okay? We make sure that you get your medications for cheap. We make sure that you have access to everything that you need and you continue to have access to it. We partner with other healthcare facilities around the county to make sure that you can go somewhere if you need something in particular done, something specialized done. We make sure we can send you to a specialist at a sliding scale fee. We make sure you're taken care of, period. I'm so glad that exists. Yeah, because it's necessary. I've been to Christ Community. We partnered with a step ahead, so we're making sure people get free birth control. It's necessary. It's important. But my boss and I, when we first moved up here, went to lunch. And we walked into McAllister's that's over in the Columns. It's here in Jackson. Um, and when we walked in, I was the only Black person on the other side of the counter which is very uncomfortable. And it's something that I've noticed immediately when I walk into a room, I'm trying to, I'm looking for other black people. It doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing. I'm looking for black folk. Okay. And nine times out of 10, I'm going to try to migrate my way over to sit by them because I'm, I need some type of camaraderie. Yeah, okay. You feel safe. So exactly. I feel safe. So we get to McAllister's and everybody black works behind the counter or in the kitchen. Um, and I order and we sit down and when I tell you people was breaking their necks to turn around and look at me, 
and not my boss, but just me turn around to look at me almost in a sense of what the hell is he doing over here? What are you doing here? This is not where you belong. You can this was like within the, the last year. Honey, this was February. February 2020. And I am in a place where people are looking at me like I'm crazy. They are turning around, looking at me and then whispering. They are doing everything that would make you feel uncomfortable. Oh, they were on it. They didn't say anything to me, but would give long, drawn-out looks, stares. And it was very uncomfortable. And I pointed that out to my boss, and she said, girl, they were probably just looking at us because we're new to town. Bitch, no, they wasn't. They was looking at us because I'm a nigga with a white girl. That's it. And it didn't make sense. But don't, what I hate more than anything is somebody coming to me, somebody that has never been in my shoes and worn black skin because black skin ain't like a cop uniform. You can't take it off at the end of the day. And I apologize if that's controversial to anyone. But do nothing, it, do about it, do it, backs, nothing about me backs blue lives matter because at the end of the day, you can take that beautiful blue uniform off and go home and be safe. I can never come out of my black skin ever. And I ain't trying to. And that's important for people to realize because what you cannot do is walk up to somebody with the skin color that I have, a person of color in general, be it black, Asian, whatever. You cannot walk up to them and tell them what they experienced wasn't their experience. You cannot say, because my brain is trained to point out and notice when people are being a little bit racist or a little bit uneasy with me, or they're moving a little bit differently than they were moving two seconds ago, or after we get off the phone and they meet me in person, now they moving a little bit differently because they thought they was on the phone with a white girl. They weren't at all, clearly, okay? I got dreads in my head and I'm black as fuck and I'm proud. They're but, so beautiful. Thanks, Boo. Um, but so it's it's hearing that come out of my boss's mouth was an immediate oh bitch I know you ain't no ally like I know I can't trust you I right. know I can't I know I won't feel safe with you because you're too quick to say well girl it's probably just or oh I don't believe that I can't believe that that's what you think it was because no that couldn't be it but so I know not to talk to you anymore or when you're in your office and you overhear a conversation about how necessary it is to go into a black community and take coronavirus testing to them because it affects corona. I mean, coronavirus is obviously affecting whites differently than it affects blacks. And I say that because we live in areas where we're almost on top of each other. We don't have access to affordable health care. We're afraid to go to the doctor because we don't know what the fuck could happen. This is Tuskegee syphilis experiment. This is injecting us with birth control and not letting us know. So therefore we're ruled infertile and we cannot have babies. These are real things that happen to real people. So we are afraid of that system. We're afraid of going to the black women are afraid of going to the OBGYN because they don't listen to how well, how much pain we might be in because there's a myth that white people do not believe that black people feel pain. We 
can get stuck and poked and prodded and they believe that we aren't feeling what we feel. And this is a slaveholder myth that's been in heads of white people for years. Black people don't feel pain the way we feel pain so we can whip them and we can give them 40 lashes and cut up their backs. We can amputate foots and feet, uh, foots and feet, that doesn't even make sense, hands and feet and we can maim these people and we can take away their dignity and they won't feel it. No big deal. No big deal. It doesn't matter. So now when I'm asking and begging for help as I'm pushing out a baby and you tell me, girl, you probably just over-exaggerating. That's how I know that you're not listening to me. When I go in to tell the doctor that my cramps are so unbearable that I cannot get out of bed to go to work. Oh, you need a heating pad. It sounds like you just need to take some Midol. No, bitch, I'm in pain. And that's endometriosis. Like it just, you know, it's, it's shit that people aren't listening to. And that's the problem that we face. But when I'm sitting down the hallway and I now hear my boss telling her white co-workers our white providers that they don't feel like they need to go into the black community and this shouldn't be black and white because it's not the 50s and we're, that's so racist and not being able to say out loud that's not racism that's literal we don't have access to affordable health care you can't build it and expect us to come because you got on the radio and said we're here that doesn't know. We don't trust you. We don't know you. So how dare you sit in your office, in your office, in a community that you have never stepped foot out into and tell that community how they need to be treated. You listen to your patient. You listen to the community that you're servicing. You don't make judgments and decisions for them. That's wrong of you. That's not how life works. And that's not how, that's not how you get anywhere. You don't get anywhere by dictating and telling people what's happening and telling them the experiences and the perspectives that they should have. You get somewhere by listening to that experience and listening to that perspective. I far too often now have recognized that there are way too many people in this world that because they don't have that experience or because they didn't have to grow up training their brain to know that you don't run from the cops or when they pull you over, you leave both your hands on the steering wheel and you talk as nicely as possible and don't seem too upset or don't cry because then they might give you a reason, that might give them a reason to then search your car because now you seem suspicious. Talk to them with respect. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Make sure they know that you are the right kind of black person, a black person that doesn't deserve to die. You're not somebody that's wasting their life because they won't see you for your potential. They won't see you for that. They'll see a black person and that's all they'll see. That's a problem. And that's why in the beginning of this whole little spiel, I said that it's important for us to be able to sit down and get to know each other because I guarantee you, if you and I were standing next to each other today and a cop walked up to us, they'd see your future and they'd see my skin. And I'm sure they'd be like, hey, she's being a little loud. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you uncomfortable? Because she seems like loud, you know? Um, is she? Did she do anything to make you feel uncomfortable? Did she do anything to make you feel uneasy or unsafe? Not. Um, what's going on here? <laughs> how can I right. help? Right. What can we do to remedy this situation? No, it's a, Madeline, are you okay? Is everything all right? 
Did she do anything to hurt you? Did she say anything that might've upset you? It looks like she, she seems a little bit bigger than you. Could she have hurt you in any way? Could she have, you, did you feel threatened? Did you feel like she was going to assault you? That is what they see. They don't see that I've got two degrees. They don't see that I'm working on my third. They don't see that I work with uh, a great community. They don't see that I'm a social worker. They don't see anything that I've ever accomplished. They see my skin, they see my dreads, and they automatically deem me as a threat or they automatically deem me as unworthy. With you, with your high school degree. Like, I just, like, I just, with your high school diploma. Like, I'm sorry. Like, no. But at the end of the day, you not sitting down to get to know me as a person, you'd never know that I cared so very much about dogs or that I care about the people that I, I'm with all the time, that I'm gay, that I absolutely love my partner to death, that I have a family that cares about me. You don't know anything about that because all you did was sit down and look at my skip. And you think that that's, oh, well, she can't like much more than fried chicken and watermelon. And you're like, I don't even like watermelon. I don't even like watermelon. And I don't even like hot sauce. Like, I don't like hot sauce. I don't like watermelon. I don't like any of that shit that y'all think we like. I don't like that. I want to go tubing. I want to go skydiving, but I want to go tubing. And I want to go skydiving. pretty cool. Huh? It's some white people shit. <laughs> no, that's some white people shit for real. <laughs> I can't do nothing to you. No, nothing about oh me can sign so up and not die. Sitting in all right now. Like, I'm just so grateful that you felt like you could share all that and spoke your truth. And, like, thank you. That means a lot to me. I know I haven't seen you, but I'm just so proud of you. Like, even just thank like you. hearing just in our whole conversation, just like listening from where you were to where you are now is like, you're, you've grown like fucking so much. Thank you. And I it's like, that. I can just hear and feel it, even though we're like through the computer. I'm just like, we will be together one day. We'll have a yeah, nice day together yeah, and have a good time for sure. That'll happen as soon as coronavirus is over and people learn how to wear their mask. Seriously. Probably never, but you know, no big deal. That's okay. Right. But no, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my truth and to speak. I'm grateful that it's you that I'm speaking with. Um, and that it's not somebody that I don't know that well, or that right. I'm uncomfortable with. I am grateful for both opportunity and experience. Um, I'm grateful for the platform truly. Um, I don't care who this reaches and how many people it reaches. It doesn't matter. I just think that it's important that it's out there no matter what. You know? I think so too. I think that you should definitely continue a series in a sense like this with other people and with people that you're going to get great perspectives from. I'm not saying that my perspective is great, but I'm well, I good. think it's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's a great intersection. You're a strong black woman and you're fucking in mental health. Like that's just, that's so important. Thank you. Um, I dropped a gummy bear in my water and I really don't know why because it tastes disgusting now. Um, just a fun flavor gummy bear. It was green apple, but it should have been like a red one or something. Um, <laughs> it tastes like uh, Burnett's vodka, except without the burn. Um, <laughs> but I don't miss those days. But anyway, no, but I, I definitely think that perspectives like mine are important, but perspectives in general are important. Totally. Well, yeah. 
whole purpose there's of food so talk. Much I don't know. Yeah. And there's so much that you can learn from people that may not be in the same background, may not have grown up the same way, may not have learned the same things. You know, I just, this is dope. <laughs> this is I'm really think so. Yeah. I, I'm really appreciative of it for sure. This was I'm dope. super. Yeah. Thank you for real. So we definitely have to get together to drink. Oh my God. Yes. I am. Um, Really in awe of your tapestry behind you with the lotus. Isn't it crazy? Um, it looks like 3D. Yeah, it, it does. But yeah. I, I like lotuses in general because they can signal, they, they give you so much meaning as far as new life and starting over and becoming. I love it. Yeah, me and Olivia have a matching one because they, they come from the dirt and they grow to be beautiful. Yes, and they grow to be beautiful and they become something that no one ever really expected of them. And I love that. So I'm obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with your. Ooh. That's so cool. I want lights to change color in my room too, Channing. <laughs> this is so cool. My I forgot. They're like these rope things. And you can like it. tape it to the uh, tape it to the wall. But mm. I don't know how much they were, but I can send you maybe a link. Yeah, do that because they're dope for sure. I want this like nebula light thing that has it looking like stars and light. Yes. That's, That's what I was trying to make this room just like yeah. trippy and like, cause it's, it's where dope. I play my music. One trippy ass trip on some shrooms, man. That would be dope. Um, but yeah, it just, I love you. You're great. And I, really I love you too. This. And I, yeah, I totally want to see you when you come to Memphis and for sure. Watch you grow we'll plan for sure but also just happy to be reconnecting in general um and I tell people I think I tell Iana and like Katie Allison this all the time but like I, I genuinely really love being able to talk to and like keep up with certain people from IC like not everybody but certain people from IC for sure like I'm happy that y'all are still around and I can talk to y'all and that you know it's like 10 years never went by you know and I know I, I can't believe it's fucking 10 years next year <laughs> and it's been 11 ish or so since I left y'all so it's That's literally true. been 10 11 years since I've seen most of y'all damn life life happens but I'm glad that it did and I'm also just happy to be in a place where we can come back around now and talk it's so cool yeah. yeah like who ever would have thought ever I never would have expected to see us here. Not sitting in the hallways doing homework in the in the freshman hallway at IC. Not sitting around making videos with Carmen and Iman. Like none of that. I never expected shit like that. I still have videos and stuff, you know. And we that's were like doing the the yes! thing. Yes, I will never forget shit like that. So those are things that are still in the back of my brain that I can replay tomorrow and be happy with. I know I saw those bridge like, builders pictures and all. Well, first I had to like vomit a little bit, and then second, <laughs> I was like, those are so cute. No. <laughs> My awkward teenage years. My awkward teenage years where I had super bushy eyebrows, kind of like right now. Um, but this is not be those super bushy eyebrows were not because of coronavirus. Um, so it's totally okay. I need to do my own eyebrows, clearly. But no, it just it's nice to be able to have walked down memory lane and then turn around and see you doing this and to be able to talk to you and to be able to know that you're out here trying to make a difference and plug some shit up and you make sure that to. people understand others and just in general bringing awareness to topics that people don't often talk about at home. So 
Yeah, I'm all about making mental health like normalized because it's like we all are fucking suffering. And if we just close off to each other, we're not going to get anywhere. I just feel like if everybody sat down and rolled a blunt together and just seriously, they would be so happy. The world would be a better place because I feel like there is so much friendship and fellowship behind sitting down and smoking a blunt with people. Um, But you can't now because of Corona. As a Quran, you really can't share nothing with nobody. Don't touch my blunt. Actually, never mind. Um, it's mine. You roll your own, and I'll roll my own, and we'll sit here and we'll smoke and we'll pretend Seriously. like we're mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure, that's the best way to do it. That's the safest way to do it. You can wear a mask while you do it too. They've got masks with holes in them now. So boom, bada boom, bada bing. Somebody cut a hole in theirs. It was just like the TikTok. Did you see it? No, I didn't. But I was like this couple and they're like eating it and they look like Kermit and they're like slurping a straw and someone's videotaping and they go, (gasps) they like saw that they were recording them. I love it. (laughs) I want one. But yeah, so anyway, I feel like fellowship is always needed and I appreciate this virtual form of fellowship. Um, Just being able to talk and get to know and, and catch up and whatever the fuck this has been exactly what I needed. Yay, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So you um, see, well, you my decompression yeah. today instead of my blunt because I'm just now grinding my shit up. I know, I was realizing, I was like, oh my God, she's been doing it the whole time, but you seem like you were just like loving it and talking and stuff. But I'm going to let you eat and be with your partner while they're in town. And I'm so grateful that you shared all these things. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for you. Thank you. I love you. You're so you. welcome. Thank you for having me. I love you. Post it so I can. Yeah, I'm going to probably edit it in the next couple of days and then I'll send you a link. Um, but yeah, it's just on Spotify and iTunes and stuff. But yeah, send it to your friends. I will. Okay. Love you. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in this week on Embrace the Madness. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Follow me on Instagram at Embrace the Madness Podcast for updates and more.